What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We've lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the Spirit. Well, good morning, Summit Church, and uh, those of you joining us at our other campuses this morning, um, glad everybody's here. We are um, in week two of our present series where we are talking about what it means to really know God. And to know that, we are studying the first half of the book of Exodus, excuse me, the second half of the book of Exodus. Uh, we got a great chapter to study this morning, so let me just go ahead and jump right into it and just read it to you. Um, Exodus 33, if you want to find your Bible. Actually, let's take a moment and um, let's, uh, let's talk to God. Father, I pray that you would surround your word with your presence so that this word would give life. Lord, I don't want to simply talk about the presence and not experience it. God, how hypocritical would that be? But Father, I can't have your presence be here, so I can't make it be here. So Father, I pray that in your grace through the Holy Spirit and by the name of Jesus that you would be here in a way that we would know that you are here. God, we don't want to be a church of doing. We want to be a church of knowing and seeing that leads to doing. So God, allow us to see, allow us to feel, allow us to sense your divine majesty. And God, open our eyes because we, there are so many in here that so desperately need to see something of you and who you are. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. I will read it to you. The Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Uptites. Those are the Baptists, okay? <laughs> go up to a land that is flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." Now when the people heard, verse 4, this disastrous word, they mourned. Jump down to verse 15. Moses said to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So Moses said, verse 18, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, but he said, you cannot see my face. 
for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Let me do a quick review for those of you who either weren't here last week or those of you with short-term memory issues. God's whole point in the Exodus was calling his people out to know him. So after he delivers them in the Exodus, he reveals himself in chapters 19 through 40, and that is the passage that we are studying over these few weeks. Last week, we studied chapter 19, and today we're going to jump all the way ahead to chapter 33, which I know for some of you type A people drives you crazy, the fact that we just skipped 12 chapters, all right? But don't worry, in the coming weeks, we will go back and work through those, all right? It's just that there is something really important here in chapter 33 that I wanted to go ahead and get out right now. So let me catch you up on what is happening leading up to chapter 33. Moses has gone up into the mountain of fire and smoke, and there God is giving to him the Ten Commandments while the people wait down below. Well, Moses ends up staying on top of the mountain a little longer than he planned, so the people get scared and they freak out. And they're like, where's Moses? Did he leave? Did he abandon us? I feel scared and alone and vulnerable. And somebody says, me too. And somebody else says, I know. Let's make an idol that will make us all feel safe. And somebody else said, that's a great idea. So they all take off their earrings and their nose rings and their watches and the gold caps off their teeth and the 20-inch rims off their chariots. And they, they melt them down and make this golden cap. And then they all get naked and start worshiping the idol. Now do you get what? Do you, you get this image? Moses is up on the mountain of fire and smoke with God, getting the Ten Commandments. And all the people of Israel are down on their version of Franklin Street, standing on telephone poles naked, getting jiggy with it, or walking it out in front of the idol. Right? Well, needless to say, God's ticked. So Moses and God have a series of conversations in chapter 32 where Moses pleads with God not to destroy the people. And God finally says, okay. But then he says what you saw at the beginning of chapter 33 where God says, look, I won't destroy him. Take the people on in the land that I promised to them. I will do what I promised. I will vanquish all their enemies. I'll make them prosperous. I'll take care of them, but my presence is not going to go with them because I'd probably kill them. Moses' response is very, very important because he says, God, if your presence is not going to go with us, we don't want to go. Now, did you get that? God offered to defeat their enemies. God offered to bless their crops and multiply their families and grow their nation, but just not go with them himself. And Moses said, without your presence, we don't want to go. So here's my question for you today. What if God promised all the blessings of life to you? A good marriage, good health, good family, even take you to heaven, but he himself, his presence would not go with you on the journey Would that be okay with you? You see, Moses says no, because he understands, this is your first point, 
Presence is the point of Christianity. Presence is the point of Christianity. You write stuff down, right? I love our type A people at this church because they're like, just tell me what to write down, right? Just cut through it all. That's what you write down, okay? Presence is the point of Christianity. The whole purpose of the Exodus was that Israel might come to know God. It was not just let my people go. Can I say this until we're sick of hearing it? It was not just let my people go, but let my people go that they might worship me. God was not just delivering Israel as an act of political compassion, but so that they might know God. And by know, I don't mean know about or know what he wants or know what he likes, but know like you would know a friend. You see, in verse 11, we skipped it a minute ago, but look back at it. It says that God spoke to Moses like a man speaks to a friend. That's the goal, personal, intimate relationship with God. This is one of the things, by the way, that makes the Bible's approach to God so vastly different from that of other religions. Other religions major on what God wants you to do, rules you need to keep, rituals you need to observe. But the Bible focuses on knowing before doing. And anything that you do comes naturally out of knowing. Go back to Genesis in the Garden of Eden. You'll find phrases like this one. In the cool of the evening, God would come down to walk with them, which I always thought was a really intriguing phrase. After work, God comes down for a stroll. You know, does God keep office hours? And what is it about the cool that God likes? If he liked the cool, couldn't he just create shade? I'm not sure. But what is clear is that they knew him, and they walked with him. He didn't just leave them with a list of rules and some things to do and some descriptions of himself and tell them to get on with their lives. They enjoyed each other. They took walks in the cool of the evening and probably smoked some non-carcinogenic cigars together as they walked. I mean, this this is their relationship. In Exodus, when God leads them out of slavery, he joins them by a pillar of cloud. You realize how significant that is? He didn't just give them instructions a roadmap, a GPS, list of things they're supposed to do while they're going. He went with them. He's like, I'm going to be right there in the middle of you. Eventually, that cloud sat down in a tabernacle right in the middle of the people. Soon, that tabernacle became a more permanent temple where the presence of God dwelt. You fast forward to the New Testament. When Jesus was born on earth, the angel said that one of the names by which he was to be called was, you remember this? Emmanuel, which means God with us. He was God with us. When Jesus grew up, one of the things he did at the beginning of his ministry that was totally surprising to everybody is he walks by the temple one day and he says, you tear that temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. And everybody looks at him like, are you crazy? It took like a thousand men 40 years working every day to build that temple and you're talking about tearing it down and rebuilding it in three days? And the author, the writer of of, of the gospel says that That they didn't realize that Jesus wasn't talking about that temple. He was talking about the temple of his own body. What's significant about that is Jesus was claiming to be the place where God lived. Every once in a while, you get a smart aleck professor who'd be like, you know, Jesus never really claimed to be God in the New Testament. Uh, Yes, he did. When he says, I am the temple of God, he's saying, I am the place where God lives. You fast forward to the end of the New Testament, Jesus leaves. And the disciples are upset that he is leaving, which is understandable. But he says, don't worry. Because when I leave, I will send the Holy Spirit to possess your soul, which would be better than me staying on earth anyway, which is a pretty awesome thought when you think about it, right? And so the Holy Spirit comes and fills the church and now lives in the heart of every true believer. Adam and Eve said that God walks with us. 
When people saw the temple, they said, God is in the midst of us. Emmanuel was God with us. The Holy Spirit is God in us. Having the presence of God in our lives has always been the point. Right? When we, when, what we lost when we were cast out of the Garden of Eden was God's presence. And so that's what our hearts have always yearned for. To know God again. To be reunited to Him again. To have Him again be our Father and our friend. You may not have known it, but it is what you have always yearned for. And in everything that you have sought, what you really have been seeking, whether you knew it or not, was the presence of God that we lost because we sinned. The human condition, as I've explained to you before, is one of nakedness. That's the human condition. People that come to our church have probably, you're familiar with this, but let me say this for the benefit of those who, who may not have been around here a long time. The human condition is one of naked. What was the first, what was the first result of man and woman's sin? They felt what? Starts with the end, rhymes with aching. They felt naked. That's right. Now, here's the, here's the question. Were they naked before they sinned? Yes. Right? They were naked, but why? It didn't bother them. Why not? Well, I read a guy from the early church who made a comment about this. And by the way, I did my doctoral dissertation in the early church, so every time I reference the early church, it makes me feel smart. So when I say early church, if you would go, ooh, that would be really good, okay? So I read a guy in the early church... That's right, good. Who said, he said the reason they didn't feel their nakedness was prior to the fall, they were clothed in the love and the acceptance and the presence of God. And suddenly when they had been stripped of the love and the acceptance and the presence of God, they suddenly felt naked. And the human condition thereafter is one of nakedness where we're always looking for a covering and we don't even realize half the time what we're looking for, but what you're looking for is the love and affection and approval of the one whose opinion you ruined in the Garden of Eden. Right? I mean, that's, you get that, the human condition? Right? What do you do when you feel naked? I'll show you this. What do you do when you feel naked? Come on. You, right, you wake up 3.30 a.m. at Super Walmart and you're buck naked. What do you do? <laughs> right, you know, you're, you're not like, oh, well, I'm here. I might as well get some stuff we need for that. You know, you, know, you don't do that, right? You're naked. You're like, you got to cover. What did Adam and Eve do? They immediately looked for covering, right? That's what the human condition is, is searching for a covering that they don't realize is the presence and the love and the affection of God. That's what this is all about. God's presence restored to your life. That's why Moses says, no way. No way. Verse 16, the presence of God in our lives is what makes us distinct. You see that? Moses said, what sets us apart? It's not simply what we believe or how we live. What sets us apart is the fact that the presence of God is with us. So before I move on from this, let me just ask you a question. Is that what you are known for? Is that what you are known for? Is that what sets you apart? Is the main dimension of Christianity in your life the presence of God in your life? When I ask you about being a Christian, will you start immediately telling me about your personal knowledge of and communion with God and the answers to prayer that he is giving to you? Usually when you ask people about their religion or their Christianity and they start telling you about what they believe or what they do or who they vote for or what they won't drink or words they won't say, but that is not the heart of Christianity. I mean, again, I've explained this before. I saw I'll say it 
for the benefit of the, some of you guys that are new, um, it, it goes back to an analogy from when I was in college. When I was in college, uh, one of my roommates, we moved off campus, and so that meant he could now have his dog. He loved that. He loved that dog. Uh, not so much us, but he, he loved that dog. The dog had an issue because the dog had been run over and had broken both of its back legs, which is kind of sad, I know. But it was a disabled dog that basically he just laid there in our house, and his whole role was to sort of stink up the atmosphere. And so every day I would, you know, his dog's name was Max. I would go to class, and I have, you know, my backpack, and I have to step over the dog and, you know, pat him on the head. And I remember stepping over that dog one day and thinking, based on how most people understand Christianity, based on how I had understood Christianity most of my life, that dog would make a fine Christian. He doesn't drink. He didn't smoke. I'd never heard him cuss. We got him neutered, so that wasn't a problem anymore, you know? Is that what Jesus really died to create? Is a group of obedient, disabled, neutered dogs? No. His intention in this is that you love him passionately with all your heart and soul. You are supposed to love and feel for God and walk with him in a way that you've never felt these things for a human being. That you have loved him and enjoyed him more than anybody else on earth. We were to be a people of presence. And let me tell you when you really need to know this. When you're in pain. Because when you are in pain, what you need are not just doctrines about how God is working it all together for good. As important as those doctrines are. What you need in pain is the touch of a Savior who has been through pain who knows what it is like to lose a child, to be betrayed by a friend, to be alienated from a father, to be abandoned and rejected by a spouse. There are times in my life when I scream out for answers. And what I get is simply the presence of God. And it is enough. And some of you, when you go through pain, you are not going to be prepared. Because as much as you know about the Bible, you have no concept of what it means for God to be near. So let me move to my next question, and that is, what exactly is the presence of God? What exactly is the presence of God? You see, for many, to say God is with us simply means they're successful. Right? I mean, you say God be with you in our culture means, I hope things work out. And I heard a guy the other night talking about the phrase Godspeed. What does that mean? And you know, somebody is leaving and you say, Godspeed? How fast is that? <laughs> you know, captain of your airplane comes on and says, we've reached a comfortable cruising altitude of 36,000 feet and are now traveling at Godspeed. And you're like, what? And you look out the window and you see Jesus, you know, flying and he's like, yeah, I mean... Godspeed? Well, that's not what the presence of God means because in this chapter you see that God says to them, I'll give you success. I'll bless you. I'll give you Godspeed. I'm just not going to go with you. And some of you really need to hear this. You can be very blessed and live completely apart from the presence of God. I know a lot of other people think that presence means some kind of strange, weird feeling that you get. I have friends in churches who think that God was in the service because they got goosebumps or because people shouted and rolled around. It's strange because 
the presence of God always seems to correspond to when the speaker was really yelling or because the music hit a crescendo. Our Hispanic pastor told me that, that in the churches he grew up in, the louder the music, the more it was assumed that God was there. Is that it? Well, this chapter actually shows you exactly what the presence of God is. Let me show you. At the end of chapter 33, Moses says to God, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I'll pass right in front of you. Here's how chapter 34 describes that moment. Look at this, 34 verse 5. Look over one chapter. 34 verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there. That's presence, right? And proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed right before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Don't miss this. How did God show himself to Moses? He proclaimed his name and described himself. What is the presence of God? It is a first-hand heart knowledge of the name of God. It is a first-hand heart-felt sense of his character, his size, the immensity of his love. Now, let me be really, really clear on this. I'm talking about much more than just understanding the doctrines of God. I'm talking about knowing them intimately and feeling them. Getting D. Martin Lloyd-Jones described it like this. He said, he said, it's like walking along the road with my five-year-old daughter. She knows that I'm her daddy. She knows that I love her, that I care for her, that I'm committed to her. But all of a sudden, I get swept up in just a moment of fatherly emotion. If you're a parent, you know what this is like. You look at them and you think, how possibly cute could they be? And so you just pick them up and you spin them around and you throw them up in the air and you catch them, you know, and then you, you pull them close to you and you just kiss them all over their face and their neck and you tickle them. And in that moment, she realized before that moment that I loved her, but suddenly in that moment, she, she feels it. She experiences an intimacy from her father that's always been true, but her recognition of that changes. See, the presence of God is a felt sense of his immense love, his greatness, his awesomeness, his holiness, his power. It's when all of a sudden you get a sense of how much greater God's grace is than your sin. It's when all of a sudden you are looking at a problem that overwhelms you and you suddenly have a sense of how much bigger God is than that problem. It's when self-doubt is whispering in your ear about how bad you are and how bleak your future looks and a louder voice says, you are my child and goodness and mercy I've intended for you all the days of your life. Presence is a felt sense of God's character, his greatness, his holiness, and his power. You see, I point this out, Summit, because... Be honest, churches like ours often become classrooms where you learn facts about God as if that were the point. Imagine that you came up to me and you said, tell me about your wife. I'm like, well, you know, Veronica Marie McPeters was born on November 21st, 1977. The doctor who delivered her was named Fred. Her first boyfriend's name was Alfonso. In college, she majored in speech therapy. She has a really cute crescent-shaped scar behind her left earlobe, and she says the word pants really, really funny, right, which is true, right? Now, you may be impressed with how much I know about her, but that is totally different than if you say, tell me about your wife, 
And I just start telling you about how much I enjoy getting home from work and just being around her. How she seems to know just what to say when I'm down. How I know what she really loves. I know what she likes. I know what turns her on. I know what her favorite movies are. I know everything. Right? That is a knowledge that includes facts but goes far beyond them. That's the kind of knowledge that says I'm really tired and I just want to go home and be with my best friend. Churches like ours often become classrooms where we learn about God rather than sanctuaries where we experience and we commune with God. Now I want to be really careful here not to drive too much of a wedge between knowing the Bible and knowing God because the only way to know God is to know the Bible and anyone who drives a wedge between those two is a fool. But I do want to point out that many of us worship our knowledge of the Bible and not the God of the Bible. We want to be full of God facts so we can be puffed up with pride at how much we know, but we don't really crave or desire to know God at all. And I'll prove it to you. Some of you guys in here that know the Bible the best do not desire at all to spend daily time with God. You do it out of a, 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 like a routine discipline, but the whole time you're doing it, you're thinking about when you can quit. So you can feel good about today because you did your quiet time or whatever that is, you know. And then you can go on through the rest of your day. You don't desire God. You're just doing stuff, right? It, it's why so many of you who know the Bible struggle so much with sins in your heart, lust, materialism, pornography. It's also, by the way, why people don't like to be around you when you talk about God. Because you're always trying to show everybody how smart and spiritual you are. you got theological B.O., your spirit stinks. And that's because what you're in love with is not God, but your own pride. So am I saying quit learning the Bible? Of course not. Just make sure that your learning is a means to an end, and that end is God and not the pride of knowledge. Can I just tell you, this is what I love about charismatic churches. You know what charismatic churches are? They're churches where the people just flat get into it. You know what I'm saying? You go in, they're swinging from stuff, hanging on the ceiling, and it's just normal, Right? Charismatics know, here's what I love, charismatics know that the presence of God is the point and they yearn for it. I've been in charismatic churches. I've been in one not too long ago where somebody leans over to me and is like, he's here. <laughs> you come into our churches and lean over and say to somebody and they're like, who's here? <laughs> Roy Williams, did he walk in? We don't even know who you're talking about. That's what I love about charismatics. They know it's the point. They yearn for it. What I don't love about them, by the way, is that they often try and force the presence of God. Or they try and think that they can do something that will make God just show up. They're like, oh, if we jump up and down enough, then God will come. You know, if we keep playing this chord over and over and over and over again and keep saying this over and over. I've been in these churches. I'm not exaggerating. Where for like an hour, an hour, they've played the same lyric over and over and I'm like does God really like E flat is that kind of how it works you know if you keep saying oh Lord you are here does he finally be like okay I'll come in you know no, yeah or by the way so you charismatics won't think that I'm picking on you my home church which was definitely not charismatic my home church used to put revival on the calendar twice a year anybody else grow up in a church like that and even as a teenager I was like really like we can just put God down and get in his daytimer like that can we just get him to come sooner? You know, <laughs> you can't schedule the presence of God. The other thing I don't like about a lot of charismatics is that they usually define the presence of God as a weird mystical experience. 
not a fresh new understanding of his name like you see here. But at least they get it. That the point is the presence and there's supposed to be something experiential in all this. In our tradition, if God would have said what he said to Moses, to us, we would have been like, okay, so you'll bless us and you'll make us successful and you'll grow us and you'll conquer our enemies and you'll supply all our money, but your presence is not going to go with us? Okay. Could you at least give us a book that we could obsess about and argue over while you're gone? That'd be great. <laughs> Guys, he is here. He's here. And if he's not, he needs to be. Because that's the point of the whole thing. You guys, listen, I love the Bible. You know that. I love teaching it. I love knowing it. But I don't want this to be a place of knowledge. I want it to be a place of presence. I want it to be a place where people walk in and suddenly the size of their guilt looks small next to the size of the grace of God. I want them to walk in where they sense the awesomeness of God that is greater than their problems and that is greater than their unbelief. I don't want this to be a place of knowledge. I want it to be a place of presence. And to be a place of presence, we have to have our minds full of the Word of God and our hearts full of the Spirit of God. Because if you've got the Spirit without the Word, you blow up, all right? You get the Word without the Spirit and you dry up. You get the Spirit and the Word together and you grow up. That's why I've told you, I want the head of a Reformed Baptist and the heart of a Pentecostal. And then just throw in the feet of a Jehovah's Witness for fun, okay? <laughs> Presence is an immediate first-hand sense, heart sense of the size, the character, and the attributes of God. Let me show you exactly what I mean by this so you don't think I'm totally out to lunch on this. I'll give you a few examples. Jonathan Edwards, one of my favorite theologians, not a loon, okay? This is one of the greatest Christian theological minds of the last 400 years, said this. Sometimes, by the way, Presbyterian is basically what this guy is, okay? And so if you're tempted to write all this off with some kind of charismatic exit, this is your, like the arch-Presbyterian of all Presbyterians. Sometimes only mentioning the name of Christ or an attribute of God will cause my heart to burn within me. Suddenly God appears glorious to me. When I enjoy this sweetness, it seems to carry me outside of myself. I cannot bring myself even to take my eyes off of this glorious object. This is beyond systematic theology. This is a sense of the majesty and the beauty of God in his heart. By the way, this can also happen, we see in the Bible, to whole groups of people at the same time. When Joshua is leading the people into the promised land, he meets Rahab, and Rahab says to him, Joshua 2, verse 9, he says, the sense of God is here among the people, and they fear him. They fear him. What does it look like when all of a sudden the fear of God because his presence in here settles on Raleigh, Durham? What does it look like when it comes across UNC Chapel Hill or Duke University or NC State? What does it look like when people begin to sense the fear of God? I will tell you one thing. It makes our outreach efforts a whole lot easier. Acts chapter 2. The Spirit of God fills the first church. And at the end of that chapter, it says something very important. It says, everyone... Everyone had a sense of awe. Everyone means the whole community, not just the church. The whole thing had a sense of awe. And the result of that, God added to their number daily those that were being saved. 
all of a sudden outreach took on a dimension that went beyond their preaching and their service to the community because the sense of God had settled into Jerusalem. Acts chapter 4, the Holy Spirit fills the church again. And this time it says that they were filled with such boldness as a result of being filled with His Spirit that they went out and proclaimed Christ's name with such boldness that everybody who heard them was astonished at how bold they were. When is the last time someone was astonished at you because of your boldness? When was the last time you were astonished at yourself because of your boldness? You see, we've got educated people who have answers but not boldness because they know knowledge but not presence. And if presence would come into this place again, our community, our campuses change. One of my favorite verses in this, 1 Corinthians 14, 24, and 25, Paul's talking about a church. And he says, here's what's supposed to happen. Look at this. An unbeliever comes into your church service and the secrets of his heart are laid bare. And he falls down and worships God and says, what a great preacher. Not what mine says. He falls in his face and says, God has to be here. You see what I'm getting at? That's what my desire is for this church. Not that we be a place of doctrine, but that we be a place of presence. I feel like many churches are, are, are like, if you know the story in the Old Testament where Elijah builds the altar and prays for the fire to come, I feel like what we do with, with the church is we build that altar, and then we, we're really happy because the altar looks great, and all these people are standing around the altar, and look how big our altar is and how many people come to our altar, but there's no fire on their altar, and they don't care. It's okay with us as long as it's big and there's lots of people there. I don't want just a pretty altar. I want the fire of God on that altar. I want the presence of God burning in your life and in our lives so that people have a sense of the majesty and the awesomeness and the nearness of God. So that leads me to my third question, and that is, how do we get the presence of God? Now, that's your million-dollar question, right? How do you get the presence of God? I, I, I think, do this really quickly, I think what I see in there are three different elements that are, that are the gateways to the presence of God. Let me just unpack them for you real quick, all right? Do this fast. The first element is in verses 7 down through verse 11. If you let your eyes go there for a minute, you'll see that what Moses did is he built this little like tent, tabernacle thing, and said anybody that wants to seek God should go to it. And Joshua went to it with Moses, and Joshua loved it so much that he didn't want to leave. He wouldn't leave. He stayed there. What do you see in that? Here's what I see. Earnest desire. Earnest desire expressed through continual prayer. Earnest, continual prayer. If you're writing stuff down, there it is. How do you get the presence of God? Number one, letter A, you know, I with a little dot on whatever you say. You earnest, continual prayer. Now let me just acknowledge, this goes against everything we are as Americans. Because if there's one thing that Americans like, it is the instant world. Everything is high speed. Right? I mean, Starbucks has further prostituted its coffee soul by introducing its new instant line of coffee. Have you seen that? It's actually pretty good. Um, you know, but, but I'm just saying. Coffee connoisseurs everywhere sit in shocked horror. Because you can't do coffee instant. It takes time to make good coffee. But people want everything fast. Like one of my favorite scenes in the movies, Neo, right? When he wants to read a book, just puts that needle in his head and uploads a book. Remember that scene in The Matrix? And you think, how awesome would that be? 
You know, friends like, hey, can you come out tonight? And you're like, oh, I'm sorry, I got a math test. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> okay, I'm ready, you know, and just downloaded the whole book in my head. Maybe one day. You watch it, and you're like, maybe one day. But you know, and I know, that relationships don't work like that. Real relationships take time. And if you're going to be filled with the presence of God, it's going to take time. One of the best decisions that I've ever made in college I made accidentally. In fact, most of the decisions that I made that were really good, I made accidentally. Now, I realized how good they were after I got done with them. Like, that was awesome. <laughs> I made a decision for a number of reasons that I was not going to do any kind of schoolwork on Sunday. And what that ended up making me do is on Sunday, I would take three, four, sometimes five hours, and I would take a Bible, I'd take a book, I'd take a pen and paper, and I would go somewhere and just sit in the presence of God. I still remember with such fond sweetness those moments of God's presence as he reveals himself in my life. It just takes time. For some of you, the greatest enemy of the presence of God in your life is not sin. I'll get to that in a minute, but it's not sin. It's simply the distraction that keeps you from being in that presence. Turn off the TV. Not just because it's wicked and immoral, and not just because it's written for the mentality of an eighth grader, no offense, eighth graders, but because it keeps you from being saturated and soaking in and filling up on the presence of God. One of my favorite quotes on this comes from a, a guy who's a pretty strange individual. 16th century, is a guy named Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was a guy who lived a pretty promiscuous life. And in his mid-30s, he felt so bad about how he'd lived that he went and checked himself into a monastery with the express goal of renouncing all pleasure. He would never put a smile on his face. He would never have a good time ever again. And he thought by doing that for 50 years that he could somehow pay for all the sins that he had committed. But in the middle of that monastery experience, monastic experience, he discovered what he described as such incredible sweetness, simply being in the presence of God as a dishwasher. That's what he checked in as, I want to be a dishwasher. Such incredible sweetness in the presence of God. He said that was so far beyond anything I knew out in the world. And he left to the church a gift called the practice of the presence of God. Now, I highly commend it to you, but one of the things he says in that book, and I quote, is this, the problem, the problem is that we take in so little during our routine two-minute devotions we're blind to God's purposes because we unplug the wire that feeds the current of His grace into our souls. On the other hand, you see this? When God comes upon a soul marinated, I love that word, marinated with living faith, He pours out grace and favors by the bucketful. They can even flow through the person's life like a river that has been kept back from its normal course, but is suddenly let loose by opening the floodgates to happily soak everything in its path. Y'all, even now, it's not my little 20-minute quiet time. Once again, I do not understand that word. That's like what you do to a four-year-old when they're acting up. Quiet time, you know. Quiet, I have my quiet time every morning. But I'm telling you, that is not, that's not it. I'm talking about time where you just clear yourself and you, Allow yourself to know the presence of God. By the way, one of the other things that this means 
is that when you pray, when you pray, you have to seek the presence of God more than anything else you're praying for. It's apparent that whatever was going on in Joshua's life, whatever he needed help with, what he most wanted was to know a little bit more of God. Here's my question. When you pray, what are you most praying for? You're praying for God to fix your problem, to give you something? These things are great, but what do you want more? Do you want those things, or do you want more of God? Some of you are in pain, and you are praying for God to fix the situation. But what if one of God's purposes in your pain was to allow you a chance to just know more of Him? And what if you spend so much time bitter and angry at Him and everybody else that you think wronged you that you miss out on what was supposed to be some of the sweetest work of God in your life? Remember years ago hearing about an ancient tribe in Mesopotamia who made a world-famous pottery. Lots of people can make pottery, but nobody can make it like these guys. And the reason was because they had a final step at the end of the process that nobody else did. They would take this pottery that was beautifully formed and painted and perfectly sculpted, and they would hold it above a marble floor, and the last step was to take it and shatter it. And then they would pick up the couple hundred pieces, and then they would melt gold, and they would put the pot back together by allowing the gold in between the cracks and so that this newly reconstructed pot had so much more beauty and value as a result of it having been broken than it did before it was broken. What if God's purpose for your pain was to allow you a place to experience His presence in the, the wounded places of your life? But you never experienced that because you were so angry at Him. Because He won't give you what you want and you're so angry at everybody else who wronged you that you miss out on the gold of God's presence, see, that he wants to put into your life through pain. So the presence of God, you see, comes into your life when you want it more than anything, and you seek it in earnest prayer. By the way, the presence of God comes into our church when we earnestly pray for it. Acts 2, remember I told you Acts 2? All those people coming to Christ? You know the little overlooked detail in Acts 2? because it, it, it never really says this, you've got you to take your, your charts out and you've got to figure out the timeline. You put your timeline together, what you figure out is that when Peter stood up to preach in Acts 2 and 3,000 people get saved, it was because the early church for 10 days had been praying. 10 days. They prayed for 10 days, Peter stands up and preaches for 10 minutes, 3,000 people get saved. Now, we pray for 10 minutes, I preach for 10 days, and three people get saved. And he's got to move the zeros around, see? The presence of God will come into this place when our church seeks it more than they desire anything else in prayer. New York City, 1857. One of the most remarkable things happened in that city. 1857, a guy named Jeremiah Lanfear came to a church, hired by a church in downtown Manhattan, and his job was to reach Manhattan for Jesus. How would you like that job? Right? He tried everything. He tried all kinds of, all of it fell flat. He went to his elders of his church and said, I got one other idea. I just want to pray. Every day, not every day, excuse me, every Wednesday at noon, pray. Were you going to preach after you pray? Nope. You going to do a concert? Nope. Just pray. Like, never work. Go ahead. Doesn't cost us anything. Opens up their sanctuary. Wednesday, 1857, six people show up to pray. Next Wednesday, 
20 people show up to pray. Next Wednesday, 40 people show up to pray, and this time somebody says, why don't we do this every day? So they began to meet to pray every day at noon. All right? Within, let me get this right here. Within two months, the whole auditorium was filled with hundreds of people praying, crying out to God for the city of Manhattan every day at noon. So they started other prayer meetings at noon. Soon the entire downtown area, every theater, every church was filled to capacity with men and women praying. Reporters estimated up to 10,000 people praying every day in lower Manhattan. Churches began to, in response, have services in the evening where people started to come and receive Christ. In a nine-month period, 50,000 people came to Christ in New York City when at, at a time when the population of New York City was only about 800,000. That would be like 100,000 people coming to Christ in Raleigh-Durham within the space of nine months. You know how that happens? It happens not because of great preachers. It happens because God's people seek it in prayer. And see, even as I'm saying that, there are some of you who think, yeah, that happened back in 1857. But not on the campus of UNC Chapel Hill today. Shame on you for letting that thought come into your mind. As if God were different and less powerful today than he were back then. Shame on you. God hadn't changed. And people today are not any more spiritually dead than they were back then. Right? Like Princess Bride, that great theological movie. No such thing as nearly dead. Right? When God raises people from the dead, it's always a miracle, and God is fully able to do it again. The hesitation is not in Him. The hesitation is in us. There is one way. I want to see that happen in Raleigh-Durham before I die. And the one way that it will happen is because we are a people of prayer. And I will tell you, sometimes, not sometimes, a lot of times, I think we have gotten away from that. You see, there was a pattern shown to me when I was called into ministry when I was a student in college. And I've shared this with you before if you're, you, know, you come here a lot. But basically it's like this. When I was a student in college, we were very burdened for our college. And so um, about four of us got together and said, we're just going to pray. We're going to pray that God does something. We're going to do two things. One, we're going to start a prayer meeting on Sunday night. Whoever can come that wants to come, we're going to pray, not for a set time, but until we feel like God hears us. And then the next night, we're just going to have a place somewhere on campus where somebody teaches the Bible. It's going to be simple. There's no lights. There's no budget. We had no money. There was not really that good of music. It just, it just was. All right, about four or five people started that prayer meeting. That thing began to grow. It began to grow, and then all of a sudden, our Bible study went from just a handful of people to several hundred people. And to this day, I love what I'm seeing God do here, but I will still tell people I have never experienced a move of God quite like I did back when I was in college. Because the things God began to do were just, it just, it just blew my mind. Because, I mean, people showed up at my door at 3.30 in the morning saying, can you tell me about Christ? It went so far beyond our outreach efforts, beyond any of our abilities. It was God was moving on that campus because we had a ton of people that were getting together just to seek God. I know that if it's going to happen here, it's going to happen the same way, and I wonder sometimes if we've gotten away from it. Small groups at our church are the places where we pray, where we get together and we just pray and we seek God for our families, for our community, for our church. We also have to do it together as a church body, and that's what I think we haven't done enough, and we need to change that. We need to get together as a church body and just say, God, more than our preaching, what we need is to pray for the city and pray for our campuses. It could happen where you work. It could happen where you live. It could happen at your campus. But it happens through earnest, continual prayer. Do you get that? 
Let me, I got to move on to the other two real quick. I'm just going to mention them. Let me say this real quick. Listen. The greatest gift that we can give to our community, the greatest gift we can give to our children, the greatest gift we can give to anybody is our intimacy with God. When Moses came down off that mountain, his face was shining. And everybody knew there was a God because they could see him reflected off of Moses. The greatest gift I can give my community is when they see the presence of God and they sense it. See, place of presence. Let me just mention the other two. I'm not going to go into them because I need to wrap up. The second thing I see in this chapter, it's in verse 5. I'll just mention it. Just write this down. If you're taking notes, go back and study it later. Stripping off their ornaments. We've got to strip off of forbidden things. You say, well, what's to do with ornaments? It's got to like earrings or tattoos. or pier-? No, it has nothing to do with it. Here's the deal. Watch. The earrings where you study this were a sign of worship of a false god. And what he was saying was, if I'm going to be in your midst, you've got to get rid of those things that displease me. See? I'm going to say something that ought to be obvious for, for whatever reason it's not. You cannot have God and hang on to your sin. Now again, that ought to be obvious, but it always amazes me when I'm talking to somebody and they're talking about wanting God in their life, but then they get this stuff over here they know that God doesn't like, but they don't want to let go of it. We have girls who want God to be a part of their lives and their future, but they are in a relationship right now with a guy that they know God does not approve of, but they don't care. They want God and that thing you cannot have. God and hang on to the things that displease him. we got people who want God in their marriages and in their families and in their futures, but you are right now plotting and planning a divorce and separation from your spouse, which is not sanctioned in Scripture, and you're like, I want God in my own will. You cannot have God and hang on to sin. You must forsake the things that God has forbidden. Here's your third thing, real quick. you got to know Jesus. Let me tell you where I get this. Actually, let me jump to the book of John real quick. John chapter 1. John actually quotes Exodus 34. He says, The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Watch this, verse 18. Nobody's ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he's made it known. And what he's doing is he's quoting back from Exodus 34, and he's thinking about that. He's like, nobody's seen God. Remember, Moses couldn't see God because it would kill him. So Moses was all a part of God. Nobody's seen God except the fact that Jesus Christ was himself God. And so when Jesus came, we saw God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the reason you know, by the way, that he's talking about that is that little phrase full of grace and truth. Because grace and truth is a translation in Greek of what in Exodus 34 is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. If you would translate that in Greek, it would be grace and truth. What he's saying is, you want to know the presence of God? Know Jesus. Get in one of our small groups. Read the Gospels. Follow him with all your heart. Galatians 3, by the way, listen to this. Galatians 3 says that's how you're filled with the Spirit, is you believe the Gospel. I put it up there for you. You can jot it down and look at it later. Paul says, how did you get filled with the Spirit? You believe the Gospel. How do you get filled with the Spirit? I've had people over the years ask if they can pray for me and bestow on me the second blessing. And I've had him say to me, you know, Pastor, man, you preach so well. You'd be great. Imagine how good you'd be if you got the Holy Spirit. I'm like, thanks. <laughs> and honestly, I actually appreciate their spirit. I appreciate what they're saying. But how do you get the Spirit? Believe the Gospel. You want more of the Spirit? You want to be filled with more of the Spirit? Believe the Gospel more. 
drive it down into your heart more deeply and you will be filled with the Spirit. You have the presence of God in your life? Do you have the presence of God in your life? It begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, we are alienated from God because of our sin. That's why we're separated from the presence. But Jesus Christ conquered our sin by living the life that we should have lived and then dying to death in our place that we were condemned to die. And now he offers to God, offers a way to God through his work on the cross. It must be received as a gift. You have to come to Jesus and admit there's no way you could save yourself, no way you could ever be good enough to earn God. You cannot be good enough to bring yourself into God's presence. It's something only Jesus can do for you. He did it for you as a gift. It must be received as a gift, and you've got to surrender to him and receive him as Lord and Savior. There is only one way that you can know God, and that is by means of what he has offered you in Christ. Listen, I know that I am a friend of God, not because I'm better than you, but simply because I have received what God has offered me in Christ, and you can receive it today. So let me end like this. Why don't I have everybody bow their heads if I would? And if you have never, if you know that you do not have the presence of God in your life, right now you can surrender to Jesus and receive His gift. It's not magic words that you pray. It's not a little prayer you recite in your heart. All right? But if you're ready to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, say something like this to him, Lord Jesus, I want to receive your gift of salvation today. I turn over the reins of my life to you. And I'm going to let you be in control. Completely. Lord, I believe that for many... At all of our campuses, many just were suddenly swept up into your presence because they just surrendered control of their lives to you, Lord Jesus. And whether they felt it or not, you restored them to God and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that there would be a realization in the days to come of your presence in their lives. I pray in Jesus' name. I want you to just kind of remain in a spirit of prayer, but I want us to do something together here. I thought that's